This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Very thankful this morning for opportunity to sing praises to King Jesus. Hope you have been encouraged as well. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 if you're ready to study God's Word together this morning as a church. This fall, we are studying the the 10 values that hold us together here at Mill City Church. And this week, we turn to unity. But before we get to unity, we need to set the set the stage a, a little bit and think about the world in which we live. Um, I'm just going to go on a little bit of an aside here before we even jump in. Some of you are thinking, wow, we're 15 seconds in and he's already chasing rabbits. Well, just go with me. Uh, we're only going to pat them on the head a little bit and we're going to come back, all right? Every Christian who has ever lived on the face of the planet, regardless of century or geographical location, always has his or her challenges they must overcome in order to apply the principles of Jesus. And so, for example, if you live in East Asia today, then one of the real challenges that you face there is actual government oppression. Sometimes that is real physical hurt that comes to you or imprisonment because you name the name of Jesus or because you preach the name of Jesus. And so being a Christ follower in East Asia, there are, there are, there are things that you have to take into account and there are going to be things contextually speaking that you will endure that perhaps brothers and sisters in Europe or in the Western Hemisphere would not experience in the same way. For us in America, a lot of our challenges of what it means to follow Jesus comes from our peace, security, and even individualism of the, of the American West. And many of you hear me talk about this often. And the reason I do is because it is very important that we understand that we look at the scriptures, and we look at the New Testament to define for us what normal is rather than looking at our world to find what normal is and then just allow the, the scriptures to tinker with our lives a little bit. Instead, what we see in the New Testament is an entirely new worldview, an entirely new way of thinking about ourselves and the world, the way in which we relate to God, the way in which we relate to one another. The Bible is up, up making our lives upside down when we come to faith in Jesus. So just as believers in East Asia are going to have some things to overcome in order to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, we also have things that we have to overcome as well. And the, and the challenge for us is oftentimes the things that we have to overcome in order to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and attach ourselves to his people unconditionally are some of the best things about American life. Our peace, our security, our safety, and even this rugged individualism that we have here. Now let's translate this to today. When you look at the average person who comes into a church to join a church, to be a part of a church, I would make a contention to you that an overwhelming majority of said people are looking for the church that is going to meet their spiritual needs best. 
So it's all about the music or it's all about the preaching. It's all about the programs. It's all about the children's ministries. It's all about the, the family Bible study or things like that that's being offered by that particular church. Now, I don't want to minimize any of those things or even to suggest that none of those things matter because of some of those things are very important in finding a local church that you would attach yourself to. The struggle, though, is, is in the consumeristic, materialistic West where we live. We oftentimes put the same criteria on churches as we do Target or Macy's. And we buy into the consumerism mindset to say that this institution, this local family, this spiritual organism primarily exists to keep me happy and to keep me fed spiritually and to keep me growing and prospering. And that is the only end to which we point when we think about a Christian existence in a local church. But what we're going to see today is that the Bible is going to upend that. And it's not just about you. It's not just about your spiritual needs. It's about being attached to a greater group of believers. And now there's a radical way of living inside of that body of believers. Inevitably, when you live in in faith in Jesus Christ, there are going to be moments in your life, there are going to be moments being together as the family of God that you are going to disappoint someone else. And they are going to disappoint you. And the challenge from those Western sensibilities is you are going to apply that rugged individualism and that rugged me-centered rights to those conflicts and to those struggles. But the Bible is going to show us a completely different way today. This is why unity is so important for us here at Mill City. And so today we're going to talk about what unity is, what unity isn't. We're going to talk about some very challenging principles to move us towards being a more unified body. And it's going to be very personal today because every person must examine his heart or her heart to see where you are today and where you need to align more with the scriptures. I've had to come face to face with this as I even studied this this week. But before we dive into Ephesians 4, let's just listen to Jesus in a couple of verses. What his overarching cry is for his people. In John chapter 10, verse 16, he talks about himself being the chief shepherd among his people. And he says this, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. By the way, he's talking about you and me. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. One shepherd. You're going to see this word one a lot from Jesus. In John 17, verse 21, in what is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus, this is the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus in the scriptures. And it's right before Jesus goes to the cross. One of the things he prays for in here, and he spends a lot of time on it, but in verse 21 is going to sum it up. He says, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me. And I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what Jesus is praying and what Jesus is saying is that his people congregating together in local churches, being unified and together in spirit and in practice, he says that this is a way in which the world is going to know that I have come. The world will know that I have been among them. The world will know that I have changed those individual lives when they corporately live in love and peace and unity together. And so what I want you to see 
is that there is no divorce between what we profess with our mouths and what we practice in our lives interpersonally in God's kingdom. This is why unity is so important. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, now I've already spent some time in Ephesians 4 as we've made our way through this Threads series this fall. But Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, are some of the most definitive verses in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul is going to speak on the topic of unity, especially in a local flock. And so let's read these first six verses together. You listen and follow along with me as I read out loud. Here's what Paul says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See that word one. You're going to see it a lot when you read through the New Testament, especially from Jesus' mouth, but also the apostles' mouth. What you've just read and followed along with is a radical way of living in this individualistic culture in which you and I live. This is radical. It upends our lives here. And what I want to show you this morning is how the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to radical living for the sake of unity. You see, the Bible doesn't call us to be radical just for being radical, just for the sake of being radical. God calls us to be radical for the sake of something greater. So, for example, he wants us to be radical in the way we spend and give our resources for the sake of his name being proclaimed and his provision to be given towards those on earth who have needs. In the same way, we are going to live and behave radically when it comes to conflict, radically when it, became, when it becomes to living together as the body of Christ for the sake of something greater, for the sake of something bigger. It's for the sake of unity. And that unity gives picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ working in our lives. So what I want to do today is going to be a little bit unconventional. Normally, when I do an expositional sermon and we go verse by verse, we would start at verse six, verse 1 and we would go down to verse 6. Today, we're going to go backwards. We're going to start in verses 4 through 6 and make our way back to, to get to verse 1. And here's the reason. is because the major theme of this little paragraph is verse 1. I am urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's where we're going to end. So here's what's wa what walking in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ looks like. So here, here, here's how the gospel calls us to radical living. Number one, we've been saved to confess doctrinal unity. Okay, so when we think about unity, we normally think about this person and this person simply agreeing with each other and not fighting. But unity is more than this. We've been saved to confess doctrinal unity. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is doctrine. The Bible is instructing us here in doctrine that God is one. That there is one way of salvation. That there's not 15 different types of confessional baptisms, but one baptism. 
That there aren't a million different spirits living inside of each individual Christian, but one unified spirit living inside of each of us. Every one of these, every one of these terms here is pointing towards a doctrine in the faith. And Paul is pointing us towards the fact that when the gospel saves you, when the gospel saves me, he is going to unite us around common doctrine. Now consider their context in Ephesus. You had Jews versus Gentiles. So you had people coming from different ethnic backgrounds. You had polytheism. You had some people who were worshiping hundreds, even thousands of different gods. You had idolatry going on. People were bowing down to statues. So secularly, nationally, religiously, people in first century Ephesus were literally all over the metaphorical map. Sound like? The times you and I live in? You see, life hasn't changed all that much in 2,000 years. Today, you and I live in a very current environment. Spiritually speaking, ethnically speaking, socioeconomically, religiously. People are coming from a variety of different contexts, a variety of different mindsets. And so even today, when someone professes faith in Jesus Christ and are brought into the church... We are now uniting ourselves around something so much greater than any one of our backgrounds from where we come. It's the same thing that was going on in the New Testament. So we learn here from Paul, yes, that there is one sovereign God in three persons. We learn that there is one Savior who is the grounds of our one faith. There is one spiritual baptism by which we may enter into the right relationship with God. There is one body of Christ, His church. These are major doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, as a side note, we know that today, that if you even look among major denominations in the United States of America today, that, and globally, that there are things that unite us. Yes, that we are all professing and confessing in doctrinal unity, but then there are some things that divide us, right? So th- those are things that, that we would call minor doctrines. There are major doctrines in the faith, and there are minor doctrines in the faith. A minor doctrine would be my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they would sprinkle at baptism. Well, we're Baptists and we like to dunk people just because we want to be a little bit messier. We want to be a little bit more pronounced in the way we baptize. No, there's reason why we baptize the way we baptize. And it goes all the way back to Jesus because it's the way he was baptized. It's not to say that we're better than our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. It's just to mean that there is a very different core conviction on how a person should be baptized. But neither the, the Baptist nor the Presbyterian is saying that that baptism would save that person. So you understand the difference between major doctrine and minor doctrine. You know, there's a lot of talk today in our, in our time about how divided the church is and why are there all these different denominations? Why can't we just be Christians? But you know, the, the church is actually far more unified than we sometimes think. For example, if you were tra- to travel to India today, if you were to travel to Africa today, or to South America today, or to East Asia, in all the times I have been to East Asia in the last 12 years, It is remarkable to me how I can land in that airport 
and I can be picked up in a bus or taxi, and I can be taken to a house church where there are 50 Chinese believers in that place, and we are opening up the scriptures, and they have their translation in their language, and we have our translation in English, and as we're reading, and as we're, and as we're studying the scriptures, and you start talking, you start recognizing that although through dialect, we may have a big chasm between us, but when we talk about faith, we talk about Jesus, and we talk about what the Bible teaches us, all of a sudden we're speaking the same language. And this is bigger than denomination. It's bigger than debate. It's bigger than theological arguments. So this morning, I want you to know that even though we have many different denominations, if someone is professing faith in the one God, through the one Savior, Jesus Christ, united by His one Spirit, and they've been baptized the same way that you and I were baptized in the sense that we are identifying ourselves with Jesus, and we're studying the same Scriptures, and we believe that this is the truth of God, you will find that we are far more unified than may appear at first glance. And so first of all, I want you to see that when the gospel saves us, that the gospel saves us to doctrinal unity. That's why when someone agrees to join Mill City Church, we will not approve of them to be members of Mill City Church unless you would agree with and you would sign on and say that you are united in the major doctrines in which we teach here at Mill City and that you will not make major what you might, what if, you would not make a major doctrine out of a minor disagreement. So we are saved to confess doctrinal unity. Secondly, we have been saved to maintain spiritual unity. We've been saved to maintain spiritual unity. If you look at verse 3, the scripture says from Paul that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Let's unpack this a little bit. When he uses the term peace here, he's not simply meaning a treaty that is signed at Versailles somewhere overseas to end a world war. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about simply the absence of arguments. We haven't gotten to the point of where we're talking relationally yet. We're at the place where we're talking simply spiritually here. That there is a peace that he's referring to that is even greater than between two people or three people in the church. And that peace is saving peace from Jesus Christ. As a side note, there are two primary ways in which the Bible talks about peace in the New Testament. One is that situational, subjective peace, meaning peace between two parties or three or four parties but then also a much more objective peace and it's saving peace from Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this in Romans 5. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he says that we have been justified by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the picture. If you have not repented of your sins and placed faith in Jesus, if you have not been born again by His Spirit, then the Bible would say that you are at war with God because of your sin. Have you heard that before? Perhaps you haven't. But the Bible talks about this, that, that you are at enmity with God because of your sin. And the greatest need of your life is not to simply go to heaven when you die. The greatest need of your life is to have that war to cease. And to have that enmity to be resolved. And to go from being a person who is hostile towards God because of your sin to be called a friend of God and to be reconciled to Him. It's the greatest need of your life. 
This is the type of peace that Paul is talking about. And what he's appealing to is he's saying that we as Christians should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because when God saves us through Jesus, what he does is he gives us this peace between ourselves and God. And then if that peace is not now manifested by a spirit of peace and a spirit of unity among his people, then what you're ultimately showing is that that peace between you and God has not truly come. And so what we begin to see in the New Testament is that we cannot say that we are right with God while constantly being a source of division and strife among our fellow man. You just simply can't do it. Jesus has accomplished peace with God by reconciling us to God through his death and resurrection and our faith in that. He has now united us with himself and his body. Now I want you to notice here. Notice the language. He says that we should be eager to maintain unity. Notice it doesn't say that we should be eager to create unity. That we shouldn't be eager to invent unity. He says that we should be eager to maintain unity. The picture again is that Jesus has already given us unity. Jesus has already reconciled us to God. Jesus has already put a spirit of reconciliation inside of us. And so our call is to maintain that that reality, maintain that spiritual unity that he has already put inside of us. In other words, our call is to outwardly live externally the inward reality of our heart that Jesus has already enacted upon us. Tom Rayner wrote a great little book. We have it back there on our resource shelf. You're welcome to grab a copy today. It's called I Am a Church Member. And in there, he has a chapter on being uh, a unifying agent in the, the local church. And he says this, you have a responsibility as a church member. Notice that, that word. You have a responsibility as a church member. You are to be a source of unity. You are never to be a divisive force. You are to love your fellow church members unconditionally. And while that doesn't mean you agree with everyone all the time, it does mean you are willing to sacrifice your own preferences to keep unity or to maintain unity in your church. And brothers and sisters, this is a bigger deal than we may think. You see, the individualism of our culture says that I have what's coming to me. And I have my rights And I am a voting member citizen of this local church just like I'm a voting member of my township or my state. And what we do oftentimes when we come into the church is we bring our democratic republic constitutionalist ideals of western society into our church. And we behave as we we do secularly or civically. And it's just not the picture of the New Testament. You see, in the Western culture, we focus so much on individual rights. But the Bible talks so much about when we join God's church, we surrender our individual rights to focus on the good of the collective, to focus on the good of the body. I wonder this morning, when was the last time you approached a conflict or even approached a disagreement that you may have from something that's preached or a decision that leadership has made or When was the last time you approached that 
and you looked at it and you say, I disagree with that. And it's okay to disagree. But when was the last time you looked at something and you disagreed with it, but you approached it with the mindset of, but you know what? For the sake of the body, for the good of the body, I'm going to trust. And for the good of the body, I'm going to defer. You see, that's a unifying agent in the church of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be unifying. The divisive person wants to stake claim to his or her rights. The divisive person wants to take a stand and to exercise their constitutional duties. It's not the picture of the New Testament church. So we have been saved to unite around doctrinal unity. We've been saved to maintain spiritual unity. And then let's look at verse 2. Because verse 2 is going to give us some of the most practical things from this passage. And we're going to spend a little bit more time on number three here. We've also been saved to pursue relational unity. So if verse three says that we should be eager as members of God's church, eager to maintain spiritual unity, then the question becomes, how do we do that? Well, verse two before it is going to tell us some of the ways in which we can do that. But before we get there, can I just paint a picture from the New Testament of how much Paul was passionate about this topic? He was passionate about it. He addressed this in almost every letter he wrote in the New Testament. He was passionate about unity in God's local church. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, he uses the term, I appeal. So in Ephesians 4, he says, I urge you. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. In Philippians 4, he does something that is absolutely ludicrous to Western society and Western culture. Paul names names. He names names and he writes it down so there would be a record for 2,000 years. And he says in Philippians 4 too, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also you true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers who names are in the book of life. And then you get to Titus chapter 3. This is a scripture that really just slaps me in the face even as a leader because I, I have to tell you, I know that in this congregation people don't always agree with me. and People don't always agree with our elders. And constantly we are being challenged with, well, you didn't handle this situation correctly or you didn't interpret this correctly. And so I, I get that. And, and, and that's just a part of being among sinful people. We're all sinful people. And it's one of the things of being in leadership. You have to be able to withstand that. And we do with grace. But I have to tell you, no matter how much people may agree or disagree with us in any specific situation, I know the integrity of my heart. And I know that here at Mill City Church, we always err on the side of grace we always err on the side of grace and we give folks a very long rope with which to grow and to overcome and to be reconciled and I have to be honest with you sometimes erring on the side of grace can actually allow more conflict and more struggles down the road and one of the scriptures that really challenged me this last week and even preparing for today is Titus chapter 3 look at the New Testament the New Testament teaches us in Titus 3, uh, verse 10, 
As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You see, sometimes it is so easy for, for you as a church member or, or you as someone who would look at leadership and, 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 and disagree with the way in which we've handled something. But, but I, I've, I have been challenged this week to say, oh my goodness, there, there are folks who think that, w- that we are authoritarians and that we are not fair, but the scriptures are actually more stern and more strict than we often are. The Bible says if there is a person in your church who is being a divisive agent, a divisive spirit, to warn them once, warn them twice, and then have nothing more to do with them if they commit it a third time. This is how passionate the New Testament writers are. This is how passionate Jesus is about unity in his church and protecting his church from divisions and bad influences that would upset the faith of those in the body. Brothers and sisters, may we as the church of Jesus Christ care about purity and care about unity as much as the Bible does, as much as Jesus does. Now, with that being our theme, you see that the theme that the New Testament is passionate about us pursuing relational unity. And so he's going to give us four ways here that we can practice relational unity and pursue it. And I have to warn you, So here's your warning. Here's your warning rating label on the movie, okay? This isn't easy. It is radical. It's radical. And and I don't for a moment want you, as, as I start going through these four things, to say, oh, this is just easy. If you would just do this, everything would just be great. No, this is hard. This is hard stuff. It fights against my sinful heart, and I know that it will fight against yours. But if you look at the New Testament, there aren't many things that Jesus calls us to that are easy. He calls us to very hard things because the gospel is a hard gospel. So here's number one. In humility, consider others before yourself. Did you see that in verse two? He says, with all humility. So in humility, consider others before yourself. Because this is really the foundational definition of humility. You see, the prideful person, the arrogant person looks out for his or her own needs. But the humble person looks out for the needs of others. The humble person asks the question, not what is in the best interest of me, but what is in the best interest of the body? In the first century world, that term humility was deemed a derogatory term even meaning low-mindedness or groveling servitude. And so it's not by accident that Jesus and the New Testament writers, they choose this word and they redeem it for spiritual purposes. It was the term that that they give in relation to the gospel in order to represent a distinctly Christian virtue. Do you see the comparison and contrast here? Do you see the contrast of current Western society versus a biblical sense of humility? Because Western sensibility says, look out for yourself. Western sensibility says, stand up for your rights. Vindicate yourself. The Bible says, sacrifice yourself. The Bible says, die to yourself and pursue the sake of the gospel and pursue the sake of others. Let me just give you a, a, a 
a comparison here between what Jesus himself did and what Jesus himself preached. Look at Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, we have what is known as probably the most Christological passage in all the New Testament and speaking of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And beginning in verse 6, it says this about Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be used for his own benefit, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. I'm just going to stop there. Do you see what Jesus did? Jesus didn't use his deity as a weapon. He didn't use his deity as a tool to make a name for himself on planet earth or to exercise it in authority over human, other human beings. Instead, what he did is he humbled himself. He made himself a slave to his creation. And what the Bible tells us here is that he did that, therefore God highly exalted him. Now, do you want to see something really interesting? Just turn back to the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, this same Jesus who did this physically here on earth, this is what he taught his disciples. In Matthew 23, verse 12, he says this, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so what Jesus is doing is Jesus is teaching that which he himself lived. Brothers and sisters, this is how we're called to live. Now, we don't naturally think this way. Our natural bent is to look for affirmation from others, not accountability. Our natural bent is to look at someone else and say, tell me where I'm right. But humility says, tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me what I'm missing. Show me where the dots of my ideas and perceptions are not connected i'm gonna be honest with you there are so many conflicts so many conflicts between fellow christians that would simply be avoided altogether if this principle were practiced in humility consider others before yourself and rather even looking for your what's good for you and standing upon your own rights and what's good for your own name, start thinking about what's in the best interest and the good of the name of the church at large. What's in the best interest of the entire body? What's in the best interest of the entire family? Now you may think that's really radical, and it is societally speaking, but you who are parents in the room, you know you operate like this at home. You know you do. If you don't believe me, then just take your kids today to Target or Walmart and put them in the toy section. And when they come demanding that they get the new Power Ranger toy or the new Star Wars action figure and it's $25 and you know that that doesn't fit in the family budget this week because there are more important things like food and bread and water to buy this week. And you look at them and what do you say? Not today, buddy. Not today. Why? Because the financial interests of the family trump the temporary wants and demands of a child. 
We operate in this mentality a lot in everyday life. But somehow we think that when we walk inside the doors of the church, that somehow that just evaporates. In humility, we consider others before ourselves. We think about the good of the group before we think about the good of our own self being right. Secondly, with gentleness, give others the benefit of the doubt. With gentleness, give others the benefit of the doubt. In verse 2, he says, with all humility and gentleness. This word gentleness means considerateness. It doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? Thank God for the word gentleness. It's just easier to say. And what this means is that when you are wronged, when you are disappointed, or when someone else has failed you, How might your circumstances change if gentleness or considerateness was extended rather than rage, hurt, envy, or jealousy? And what this tells us as brothers and sisters in Christ and even people in our own homes is that we must resist jumping to conclusions. Believe the best about one another rather than the worst about one another. Here's a principle that I operate off of as a shepherd and leader of this church. Listen to this. You may want to write this down. Very few offenses happen in isolation. Did you hear that? Very few offenses happen in isolation. So, for example, sometimes people hurt you because they themselves have been hurt at home. Sometimes people lose their patience with you because there, were, there was a whole litany of events that happened earlier in that day. See, sometimes we don't know all the story, do we? Sometimes we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Sometimes even as we deal with personalities in our faith family, we, we are dealing with them not in isolation, not because this happened today, but this happened today and then this happened over the last year, two years, or three years. You see, very few offenses happen in isolation. But see, sometimes when we're in the middle of the wrong, we're only looking at the circumstances today. But this is why God gives us shepherds. It's why God gives us pastors. It's because we need people, we need leaders to help us get in the helicopter to see the big picture because there are so many times when we don't have the full story. And we don't know what all is going on behind the scenes. At its core, this term gentleness also carries with it the idea of restraint. Or, here's another word for it, phrase for it, controlled strength. You see, what wisdom says is when something happens or disappointments are there, and I'm so tempted to question, wisdom says, maturity says, hold that in. Hold that in and trust because I may not have the full picture. So with gentleness, give others the benefit of the doubt. Three, through patience, show others the mercy you've been shown. Through patience, show others the mercy you've been shown. He says that all humility and gentleness with patience or long-suffering, it means having strength or ability to avenge Or to vindicate your cause or to stand up for your rights. But you don't. 
Brothers and sisters, I, I, I believe with all my heart that one of the surest signs of Christian maturity and Christian wisdom is the Christian's ability to operate out of that. Is the Christian's ability to be able to restrain and refrain from avenging or standing up for your own rights in the middle of being wronged. I wholeheartedly believe this. And one of the reasons is because the person who wants to quickly get revenge, the person who wants to quickly vindicate their own cause or their own name, they have forgotten the mercy that they received from God himself. Because you see, the picture that we, the, the, the principle we usually live by is we want justice for everybody else. But we want mercy for ourselves. We want everybody to forgive us. We want everybody to overlook our wrongs that we have done. But when someone has wronged us, then we want to operate out of a position of being the judge and we want to just execute justice on the spot and we forget all the mercy that we ourselves have been shown. This is a principle that I as a pastor have to operate out of all the time. I'm going to be really honest with you today because I don't know any other way to be. There are so many times when a person in church will approach me and say a certain thing or accuse me of a certain thing. And inside, I want so badly to blank. (laughs) But I have to operate out of restraint. And mercy and grace... Number one, because it's what God has given to me. But number two, because I am operating in a position of being his agent on earth. I must go above and beyond to make sure that I demonstrate that towards others. Now, I won't for a moment pretend like I do that perfectly. But brothers and sisters, I am cognitive of it. And the Bible says that I'm not the only one that needs to be aware of it. Every one of us as a Christian, through patience, should show others the mercy that you've been shown. Lastly, in love, bear with the faults of others, knowing you have your own. In love, bear with the faults of others, knowing you have your own. That's what he says. He says that we are to bear with one another in love. Now, now follow me here. Let's be logical. Want to play logic for a moment? So we're just going to turn this into a philosophy class. Do you have to bear with someone who always writes you? Do you have to bear with constant good and blessing from the lips of others? You don't have to bear with that. No. See, the Bible concedes. The Bible makes the concession that we are all sinners The Bible concedes that you're going to be hurt. The Bible concedes that you're going to be wronged at certain times because we are imperfect people. The Bible is going to concede that to you by saying that in love, bear with the faults of others because you don't have to bear with someone who always blesses you and does you good, but you do have to bear with those who wrong you and you have to bear with those who offend you. And it's very loving when you do that. That's what he says. 
bear with one another in love. Do you know what love actually is? Love is not a feeling, first and foremost. It is a feeling, but as the 80s band said, it's more than a feeling. It's more than a feeling. Now you do the echo. No, I'm kidding. Love is an action. Love is something you do. Love is something you will. You look at your marriages. A husband and wife can tell each other every day, I love you, I love you, I love you. But if they don't demonstrate that love through sacrifice, forgiveness, and care, their words are empty jargon. Jesus did not go to the cross because he felt like it. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he loves you so much and he has a picture of you on his refrigerator. (laughs) Jesus went to the cross because he actively willed it. Because he knew that it was in the best interest of all those who would place faith in him. And he knew that it was in the best interest of the Father's glory. That's an act of love. Because you count the cost and you look at someone else's good And you exercise out of that and not just what feels right. So in love, brothers and sisters, bear with the faults of others, knowing you have your own. I'm not going to go there because of time, but you could look at 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. The Corinthians were so jacked up, they were suing each other. They couldn't even agree. They would, just, they, would take, they would take each other to secular courts and Paul rebukes them for it. And he actually says in that paragraph, can you not suffer a little bit of wrong? There are so many times that as followers of Jesus, in humility, gentleness, and love, we keep our mouths shut and we suffer wrong because it's what Jesus did. On the way to the cross, Jesus did not revile. Jesus didn't curse. He kept his mouth shut. And he bared the cross of Calvary. And so every time you and I do that, we're mimicking our Savior. In love, bear with the faults of others, knowing you have your own. Last thing. So, we have been saved to confess doctrinal unity we've been saved to maintain spiritual unity we've been saved to pursue relational unity lastly we've been saved to live worthy of the gospel we've been saved to live worthy of the gospel this is ultimately what's at play church it's ultimately what's at play we do these radical things to portray the radical nature of the gospel We pursue these radical actions and these radical mindsets to show the world that something has happened to my heart. Something has happened to my life. If you simply respond the same way in which your lost neighbor does or your lost brother or sister at home does, you give no verifying proof that Jesus has enacted upon your heart. But we ultimately live this way and pursue unity through this way in order to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot divorce what you confess on Sunday morning from the ways in which you interact Sunday night through Saturday night. We've got to live what we confess. I want to ask you a couple of questions this morning as we finish. And so, I mean, I'm going through our values of Mill City Church this 
fall, but we're not just going through these just to give you information. We also need to examine our hearts. So just as we have in response to the gospel or in response to the Bible or last week when we talked about prayer, I want you to examine your hearts today. Number one, are you in right relationship with your God? Are you in right relationship with your God? You see, you may think that you're living quite well among fellow man, but you've never truly been reconciled to God. You're still at enmity with Him. You're still an enemy of God because you've never been born again. Today is the day where you could acknowledge the fact, God, I haven't received your mercy because I've never asked for it. And so today, it's not about religious experience. It's not about what I did when I was four years old. It's about today. I'm examining my heart. And Father, I'm repenting of my sin. And I'm placing faith in your son because Jesus lived the perfect life I was supposed to live and died the punishing death I would deserve to die. But because he resurrected to new life, I want new life and a new way of living too. Would you pray something like that today? So first, I would call you to make sure that you're in right relationship with your God through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're not, would you take someone by the hand? Would you just be brave and courageous today and just look at someone and say, would you help me? Would you help me understand this? Help fill in the gaps for me. Don't keep that private. Secondly, are you in right relationship with your brother? Are you in right relationship with your brother? Are you bearing with him in love? Are you extending gentleness, considerateness towards her? Are you being humble? Are you being prideful? Are you putting your feet in the concrete, being immovable because you're trying to vindicate your own cause? The Bible would call you away from that. And the Bible would also say that if you want to be in right relationship with God, you must also be in right relationship with others. And so maybe today would be the day where you would say, I'm deferring and I'm considering others before myself. I'm considering the greater good for the faith family and not just for my own heart and life. Would you repent today of that sin? Because it's sin. And it could even lead to divisiveness. And the Bible speaks very harshly against that. However, we need to respond today. Let's respond. And let's be a church that doesn't just confess doctrinal unity, but we would also maintain spiritual unity and pursue relational unity because this is a value here at mill city church it's a value it's important father we pray today that jesus's name would be honored as holy we pray today that jesus would be magnified because he's our ultimate example jesus gave us the perfect example of being reviled being ridiculed and being embarrassed and being wronged but not lashing out Not fighting back, but in love, bearing with that sin for the good of the multitude who would put faith in Him and live forever for God's glory. Lord, I pray today that we would be a people who live for that same bigger thing. That we would consider Your glory, that we would consider the good of Your body more than the good of ourselves, more than the good of our friends. Father, I pray today that we would be a body known for our unity. That we disagree well. That we would fight well. That we would forgive well by humbling ourselves and looking at the mercy of Jesus. I pray today that we would be conduits of your grace and mercy 
because you have lavished it upon us, I pray that we would lavish it now upon one another. And Lord, as a result, I pray that when we look at that and the lost world looks at that, that they would see Jesus acting upon our hearts. And we pray this in his name today. Amen.